Hello, everyone, and welcome to the American Enterprise Institute's The Bradley Lectures. I'm your host, Tal Fortgang. Today, we've got something a little different for you. We'll still be revisiting a Bradley lecture from years past, Bowling with Tocqueville, by the American political scientist and polling expert Everett Carl Ladd, originally delivered at our headquarters in September of 1998. But this week, we'll be interrupting Ladd's lecture at a few junctures to discuss the lecture's particular relevance to today's political and social climate. To do that, we have in studio AEI visiting fellow Tim Carney, whose new book, Alienated America, addresses many of the same themes Ladd addressed more than 20 years ago. Ladd's lecture assesses the growing concern that Americans were experiencing an erosion of the associational and communal life that had characterized the country since Alexis de Tocqueville's famous exploration of the vibrant new nation in democracy in America. Contrary to Robert Putnam's work in Bowling Alone, Ladd argues that American civic participation had not eroded. It had only evolved. Tim, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the first thing I want to ask before we get into the details of Ladd's lecture is what we mean when we talk about associational life and social capital, what they've meant in Ladd's time, and what they meant in your book. Now, it's interesting because social capital is an opaque term. So I actually don't use it when I'm talking to ordinary crowds. I certainly don't say social capital when I go on Fox News or MSNBC. Um, And the other thing is, and this this show now, this podcast is the first time that I'm rolling out this fact. Robert Putnam actually misquotes <laughs> the main quote he uses to define social capital. He quoted a guy named L.J. Hannafin um, writing about what it is, but he, he called in Putnam's book, he calls it tangible substances, which count for the most in the daily lives of people. That always struck me as a little odd. So it was... Um, Nick Safran, who is my RA, looked into it, and he found that what he was really saying was that it's not the tangible. So the the definition that I really like from L.J. Hannafin says, social capital does not refer to real estate or personal property or cold cash, but rather to that in life which tends to make these tangible substances count for most in the daily lives of people, namely goodwill, fellowship, mutual sympathy, and social intercourse among a group of individuals and families who make up a social unit. So again, that's wordy. I think social capital are the things that are incredibly valuable that we often have at our disposal, sometimes using on a day-to-day basis, sometimes relying on as an insurance policy that are not tangible, such as the friend you know you can rely on to pick up your child from school if you're unable to do it. Or simply the fact that your child could walk home from school or the friends who will help you move when you're going from one apartment to another Um, or the organization that you know will arrange for meals to be brought to you if you break your leg. These sort of things are things that nowadays you can pay for often through apps, (laughs) grocery delivery, Uber, etc. And so that reflects how valuable they are, but that often and especially historically we only we only had access to these through social networks, institutions, clubs, things that we belong to. Well, that's very interesting, and I want to get back to the technology angle later. But for now, uh, I just want to address one more point about Lad, which is that he tends to uh, make the jump from rates of participation mm-hmm. in voluntary and communal activities 
to the development of social capital, and clearly there's a connection between those two things. But his method, uh, as we'll hear in just a moment, of arguing against the Robert Putnams of the world was to say that rates of participation in civil society and voluntary and associational life had actually not eroded, they had simply evolved. Now, clearly that's not quite your finding in Mm -hmm. your book. Have rates of participation simply eroded, or is there something about the quality of associational life that has changed in the intervening 20 years? Uh, Rates of participation have eroded, and um, Putnam argued this. Ladd's response was something like, well, we don't really have enough evidence, and there's, there's ways in which they have and ways in which they haven't. But other research since then in the last 20 years has confirmed that. And um, even so, an AI uh, put out its uh, survey on community and society, which the authors found uh, lots of positive things. Sam Abrams led this, Carlin Bowman, Eleanor O'Neill, uh, O'Neill and Ryan Streeter. They found lots of positive stuff, but they did also find that that idea that we have moved away and sort of are on a downward trajectory in our involvement in community organizations, whether they be bowling leagues, PTAs, et cetera, um, that that has continued apace. So I think that the that we have seen a continued erosion of this. It's obviously not always easy to precisely measure and that there are ways in which to change, that people don't necessarily belong to as many things, but they're still active. You know, if you're going to brunch, this is what all my, you know, unmarried childless friends do on a Saturday or Sundays. They all go to brunch. If you're going to brunch every week, there's no club you necessarily belong to. But yeah, that's social capital. If you're thinking on a Thursday, oh, I can't wait to tell Steve about this thing when I see him at lunch on Thursday. So that's there is evidence that it evolves. But from what I've seen, what I reviewed, I do think that in a, that part of the way people say it evolved, again, technology, I don't think that generates and preserves social capital to be uh, digital friends with somebody in the way that belonging to something and being physically proximate. So I do think it's an evolution, but also a decline. All right. Tim and I will be back in a few minutes to discuss how a nation that once bowled together, even in Ladd's time, could become so alienated. And now, here's Everett Carl Ladd on Bowling with Tocqueville. Well, for two years now, I've been examining uh, all the data I could find on the state of the country's social capital, as it's sometimes called, or civic engagement, which is to say data on the status of American citizenship, or certain important aspects of the status of American citizenship. I began this work uh, two years or so ago against the backdrop of quite insistent claims that Tocqueville's nation of joiners individuals taking responsibility for their society, its health and integrity, was fast becoming a nation of learners. That is, um, much of the public was seen retreating into private spheres, neglecting community responsibilities, uh, retaining certain large elements of the historic American individualism, but abandoning its collectivist or community-serving side. Uh, In one powerful metaphor that really caught on, Americans uh, hadn't stopped bowling, Uh, but increasingly we were bowling alone. Now, for about a year before I began to do any serious work on this, Carlin Bowman told me that this was an important topic that I should pay attention to, and that she thought a lot of misinterpretation was out there in terms of what was going on in American civic life. And we'd have a conversation every 
oh, two or three weeks, and she'd bring up some point, and I'd nod and say, yeah, and, and about a year went by before I actually did anything. And this, uh, I must confess uh, to this assemblage, has been a pattern that uh, she and I have followed in many uh, other uh, collaborations and associations where she would come up with an idea, and it would take me about a year to catch <laughs> on that there was something substantial there uh, and uh, before actually beginning um, work uh, on it. The literature I began reviewing, Putnam's writing, but, but others, illustrated much of what in my view is wrong with uh, the section of social science in which I live, where all kinds of anecdotes were tossed, up, tossed out, unsubstantiated points made. We were told that the Elks lost membership badly over the last uh, years as other organizations and we should be concerned about that. Bowling leagues uh, were on decline. By the way, I still don't know whether that's true. <laughs> I mean, some organizations have actually lost members. That's not surprising, naturally. I mean, organizations rise and fall have throughout history. But on the bowling league side, I'm really not sure what's happened. And I suggested to a graduate student of mine that she do a survey of bowling leagues of, of bowling establishments of, about the status of their leagues but somehow that didn't seem cutting-edge political science in the project uh, it didn't get uh, didn't get underway we were told in that literature that social trust is withering uh, with profound consequences for civic America anecdotes abound uh, systematic data all too rare so my idea in this uh, book was to uh, just collect facts maybe organize them, hopefully to make some points, but to, to bring information together and, um, and set the record out and see what people think when they look at the, at the best assemblage of relevant information about the health of Civic America uh, that I've been able to, uh, to come up with. As I got going on it, um, I was waiting in line at a gourmet coffee truck near my office and uh, a hand came up behind me and patted me on the back and a voice boomed out, so what do you think about bowling alone? Well, it was a distinguished colleague, actually uh, uh, the university librarian, who had just finished reading commentary on Putnam's work and uh, was much taken by it. That didn't seem to be, that coffee line didn't seem to be exactly the spot for an extended seminar in America's social capital. So I replied briefly that while I agreed entirely with Putnam and many others, that the health of the country's associational life and individual participation in civic affairs are of vital importance, I didn't think Putnam was right in claiming that the data show civic decline. Well, I don't know about the data, my friend uh, replied, but what he had to say felt right to me right here. And I've encountered that, uh, that same kind of response in a great many instances, that somehow the idea of civic decay has struck a responsive chord or note uh, on the part of many people, including people at different points uh, on the spectrum of of thinking about the society. My research wasn't initiated primarily as a response to Putnam, even though his essays for a time got an awful lot of attention. Um, it seemed to me that bowling alone uh, has become a powerfully evocative metaphor for a series of worries, some substantial, many very diffuse, about the health of contemporary citizenship. My University of Connecticut colleague certainly uh, isn't alone. The United States, we know, is an individualist democracy. Let government do it uh, has never been our thing. We've counted on individuals doing it, a lot of the time anyway, by accepting responsibility for building and maintaining a good society. Somewhat paradoxically, 
and individualist democracy is unusually dependent on harnessing collective or cooperative energies. Individual citizens can't manage a society, can't possibly address its manifold needs in any satisfactory fashion through solitary uh, labors. We must come together in associations, large and small, where we learn and practice our citizenship. Our ideal has been and remains an America of active civic and social organizations, churches, philanthropies, volunteerism, not just to help concretely with a myriad of social needs and problems, but even more important to sustain community life, the life of citizens, that the me will become too assistant, insistent at the uh, expense of the we is a persistent American worry. And engaging citizens in civic affairs is the persistent American answer to how a narrowly self-serving individualism can best be avoided. No one has ever thought it would be easy. A collectivist individualism built around community engagement can release enormous civic energy, but it asks a lot of millions of citizens. It's not surprising that many in each succeeding generation of Americans have worried that uh, vigorous community participation through groups and charities and voluntary services somehow losing ground. There's always plenty to worry about in this and any other society, uh, of course. Peter Drucker, in a very fine essay a number of years ago, described American individualism as collectivist, as a collectivist individualism. I think he developed that idea particularly nicely. But actually, a socialist intellectual in the 1930s, Leon Sampson, did a maybe even better job in understanding how uh, American individualism differed from a lot of its European counterparts. And he emphasized the collectivist element. Uh, in a very fine and interesting book called Toward a United Front, which Samson wrote sometime in the early 1930s. There's a lot of worry, and sometimes it's expressed in terms of our social capital account. The traditional reference to capital involves economics, of course. My dictionary defines the term as the wealth, whether in money or property, owned or employed in business. And as any form of wealth employed or capable of being employed in the production of more wealth. Well, drawing on this route, Social capital encompasses any form of citizen-civic citizen engagement employed or capable of being employed to address community needs and problems and in general to enhance community life. The great social capital debate addresses this question. Are we spending down our supply of social capital? Not has it all gone, no one argues that. Are we spending it down? Some think that the balance is now dangerously low and worry about the consequences. I try to address this with as much relevant data uh, as I can find. So, Tim, what do you make of that element of the lecture and Ladd's skepticism that we've drawn low the well of social capital? Well, I, I think he's, he's very good in sort of uh, having a humility about it, saying he doesn't think we are, but acknowledging that we might be. And in the 20 years since then, I think it's proven that we were and we were drawing low the well of social capital, and we've drawn it very low. I think Occupy Wall Street, the Bernie Sanders phenomenon, and mostly the Donald Trump phenomenon are reflections of that well run dry, that people are turning for huge solutions on the federal level. The Occupy Wall Street and Bernie Sanders was largely about people feeling completely uh, disenfranchised, not having the ability to exercise their muscles as social animals, and so thinking, oh, well, the problem must be in Washington and the banks having control of it. 
And Donald Trump was his early support, the people who never participated in politics for the last 20 years and then came out. It's them looking for a strong man to fix a system that was totally broken. The I, the under, the belief that you fix these problems of your life, of alienation, of unemployment, of opioid overdoses, the idea that you fix those by turning to, oh, just a guy who's willing to bust heads in Washington is a reflection of exactly the alienation that Robert Nisbet talked about, which is when people lose their connection to civil society, to little platoons, they also fail to see the purpose of it and their eyes turn somewhere else. So I think a well of civil of social capital having run dry is what causes people to turn to uh, Bernie Sanders and uh, and then to Donald Trump. So in, in Nisbet, who you mentioned, in his and other mid-century conservative thinking, there's this uh, sort of dichotomy between the individual and the state and those little platoons of civil society that you mentioned uh, are mediating forces. And mm-hmm. I think that's an animating part of the conservative tradition in the United States. Yep. Uh, what do you make of the sort of synthesis of the two that Ladd yep. alludes to in this collective individualism yeah. Uh, that he speaks of as being part of the American character. It really is a very interesting... Uh, I mean, synthesis is a good word. I, I'm an Aristotelian, so I think of virtue as being a mean, but even that is a little too simplistic in this particular thing. And young people tend to go to one extreme or another, and I was an extreme individualist as a as a teenager, and a lot of people become communists as teenagers, and then as we become older, we realize it's a lot more complicated And in fact, it's in conversations with Arthur Brooks where we sort of disagree on some of this that it's come out. He once said to me half in jest in an AI kitchen, the American dream is going out to the place and setting up your home and your family where you can't hear your neighbor's axe chopping the wood. And there's a way in which that's true. The the our ancestors um, came here like they were the people who got on a boat and left. And then the frontier, whether it's Pennsylvania or, or further out, was was all of that. Heck, we even went to the moon to get away from people, right? Where this is what America is. On the other hand, the story Tocqueville tells of the American dream is us just constantly planting roots really deep. So there's these two stories of what is American, the frontier mindset of just going out and, and packing up roots and the John Wayne movies or the cowboy who travels from town to town, etc., and this uh, planting of roots and being where you are for generations at a time. By the time Tocqueville visited, there were already tons of these families that had been established. So that, I think, is a mirror of that individualism and collectivism forming together in a, in a, in a great American way. And one of the things that happens when you go around, so when I'm talking about alienated America, people say, well, don't these tight-knit communities create all sorts of problems? They're exclusive. They can be racist. They All of this stuff, which is true. And I always say, but I think America does the best job of tempering this by, for one thing, having multiple overlapping layers. So I belong to my Catholic parish, but I also belong to AI and the Washington Examiner and a swim club to some extent, even my local pub and all of these things have these overlaps. But the fact that I'm belonging to many things gives me this autonomy within uh, within a system, within an institution. So uh, the, the, the blend of those, I think, is part of what makes civil society in America so rich that the individualism has a way of thriving amid the collectivism.
And with that, let's hear what Ladd has to say about Americans' participation in civil society in empirical terms. Uh, The literature on civic performance is riddled with unsubstantiated claims for a variety of reasons, some people just wanting to say things without checking them out, Uh, but also because uh, we haven't uh, anything approaching a comprehensive database on trends in civic life, at least I haven't been able to find one. If you want to know a Major League Baseball player's batting average against left-handed pitchers in games completed after 1 p.m., you can get it in a flash. But if you want to document what's been happening to associational membership, be prepared to spend a lot of time assembling the material yourself. Of course, we know that many Americans gave of their time and energy to help others uh, at various points in the past, and that many continue to do so today. But is the proportion who volunteer or make charitable contributions or join in associational life in other ways increasing or decreasing? To what effect? Measurement problems are especially severe when it comes to charting trends in associational life. Bob Putnam argued in his first Bowling Alone essay and in some subsequent work that we should be concerned that membership in the JCs, the ALKS, the League of Women Voters, and the PTA, he mentioned some others, had dropped off significantly over the last three decades. Well, membership in all these and more organizations has declined from post-war heights, post-World War II heights um, in, in, in recent decades. But unless one is prepared to argue that a particular organization is uniquely valuable in civic terms, why should we worry about it losing ground? Why should we care that the Benevolent Protective Order of Elks has fewer members now than it had in in 1950, which it does? Social and civic groups have come and gone throughout the history of the Republic. Putnam offered no evidence, nor have any other of the civic decline thesis proponents, to my knowledge, that the loss uh, that the Elks and the JCs and others have experienced has not been matched or even surpassed by increases in other groups at least as attractive in their social community serving uh, activities. See, this is what keeps happening. Groups are, there's constant churning. As some groups fall to the wayside, lose ground, others come in their place. Sometimes groups that are coming up change their mandate. Hard to keep track of all of this, but a lot is going on. What about bowling? Well, I sort of think of bowling like I think of the Elks. Uh, I mean, sort of as yesterday. And I don't mean to disparage Elks. Or bowling. I mean, I, I enjoy bowling. But, I mean, a lot new is happening in terms of engaging people in athletic participation. If you look at religion, you know, a lot of the studies about civic America that have been done over the years ignore churches. They don't count them in, in their tallies of, of civic associations. Yet, of course, we know that uh, more Americans are involved in churches uh, than in any other uh, social and civic organization. We know that churches perform religious roles, but we know they perform a wide array of community roles quite apart out from the domain of, of religion as such. And here again, you, you see uh, enormous energy in terms of uh, the, the present. This is now being written about a little more imaginatively. We've known for a long time that the old line, old main line groups were losing ground, and we know of the enormous growth in membership that's occurring uh, elsewhere of all kinds, uh, denominationally, non-denominational, uh, all kinds of settings, religious settings, mega churches have been appearing around the country, offering their parishioners social services, para-religious bodies like the Promise Keepers are engaging millions entirely outside any denominational base. The huge contemporary search for new religious forms is also seen in the growth of community churches that are often intensely participatory, but eschew historic denominational associations. Uh, Again, it's important to keep in mind that churches 
have never been purely religious bodies. They've been centers of social and civic life and prime centers of volunteering, the principal recipients of charitable contributions, of course, by a huge margin uh, in the United States. And they're showing enormous energy in transforming themselves to meet contemporary needs and tastes. So clearly, Ladd thinks that civic participation has not eroded, it's only evolved, but what has your research indicated? What have we seen over the past 20 years? So I, I looked into this while writing Alienated America. I found uh, Senator Mike Lee's office, a joint economic committee, done study, the Social Capital Project. Uh, they use the phrase associational life, and they found uh, very similar results to Putnam having continued again in the, in the 20 years afterwards. There's a French sociologist, um, Ivai... Ivailo Petev, who wrote uh, a decade after Bowling Alone, quote, Americans' growing isolation is thus corroborated here in this case of extended networks. We see evidence for the decrease of formal and informal ties across America. And you had uh, BYU do a study on this and find, quote, an increasing portion of the U.S. population now experiences isolation regularly. Um, so that's a very related topic. More than a quarter of the population lives alone. More than half of the population is unmarried. And since the previous census, marriage rates have fallen. And then you have seen an incredible drop off again in marriage rates. And I think that that is a consequence of and evidence of declining social capital. People don't have the things that bring them together. And when we talk about bring them together, often we're talking about a, a safety net, a sense of purpose. But often it's just actually coming together and meeting people, including the person you might marry. There's not as much of that. When you look at riot, suicides having hit uh, all-time high in the U.S. in the last year, when you're looking at the rising opioid epidemic, all of those things to me are just clear signs of alienation, of social vacancy is one of the terms I came across in an article on opioid epidemic, that this is about people not having connection, but also sort of the way, I guess, Arthur Brooks would put it, not belonging to anything and not being needed. So all of the these numbers suggest to me that alienation and disengagement is a real problem. Now, the exception to that would be among sort of the elites, there's not much of a drop off. I do think people don't talk to their neighbors as much. That's hard to measure, right? But you do see that they belong to as many things. They belong to professional associations, alumni associations, their kids play Little League, and um, the drop-off in church is a lot less so among them. But among the rest of the country, uh, the disassociation, the deinstitutionalization is certainly there. And uh, church attendance is slowly but steadily dropping. And the number of unaffiliated people is, uh, is, is rising a little more fastly than that. So you obviously mentioned church association quite extensively and how important that is. Ladd notes that people in his time 20 years ago had not stopped going to church. They had merely joined newer churches that spoke to their needs uh, in the late 1990s. Now, is there something in particular about the way worship is conducted or the way that the kinds of churches people affiliate with mm -hmm. uh, that make them e either more likely to eventually stop attending church or alternatively to simply lose those kind of social capital connections that had been uh, forged in churches previously? Well, you have seen in the last 20 years a growth of megachurches, and often these are sort of franchised out, where, you know, here in the in the D.C. area, there's a McLean Bible Church, which moved from bigger building to bigger building, and then it had to set up sort of 
uh, regional wings and a lot of it's going to be broadcast from somewhere else and there are thousands of people in these multiple buildings and they don't they're not little platoons they're you know they're practically battalions out there and um, the most dedicated members set up a small group and go to that and thereby sort of get the the social capital building the interweaving that uh, happens but for others it's less there and also I was meeting with a group of pastors a couple weeks ago and one of the things they came across was yeah, there had been an effort to make worship service on Sundays be sort of a little more modern, but then they found that they weren't making their their liturgy, so to speak, be any different than daily life. You go there, there's some music, there's some stuff on TV, and Jesus is talked about more, but otherwise it's not different than from daily life. For me as a Catholic, not even a particularly traditionalist one, but you know, we have Latin, we have songs, we have, we're have we repeating prayers. We're, it's, it's very different from how we spend our workday. And, and a lot of um, pastors I talked to found, yeah, there was a, that the, the step of going to, oh, well, this is more like, more relevant, more modern to my daily life was a step before people uh, refusing to n- no longer seeing the point in it. So I do think some of the data bears out that the, People who are maintaining their members better these days are um, going to be more orthodox, more traditionalist uh, liturgies, worship styles, and that's Protestant, Catholic, and Jewish, as far as I've seen. And that this uh, there's something there has to be a reason to go there, and the reason can't be if we all gather once a week then we'll be more tightly connected. There's got to be some other reason to go there, and then the social capital benefits uh, flow afterwards. All right, once more, let's go to Everett Carl Ladd talking about media, TV, social trust, and fairness. Still some see uh, problems of of decline of civic America, and you find um, a variety of of sources, of potential sources often cited. For example, uh, there's TV. That's been a favorite of of a lot of observers. I think TV is the one significant technological creation of our time, which is an absolute monstrosity in terms of its implications. I mean, so I don't start this as 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 a fan, but I don't see any evidence that civic America is becoming unglued because of television, although there may be many aspects of the TV culture that we would want to change. And we're told that, well, women in the workforce, the dramatic expansion of women over the last 30 years working outside the home has cost organizations like the Red Cross and so forth uh, significant numbers of volunteers which they, uh, which they previously had. Well, undoubtedly it has cost some, but all measures that I can find of volunteerism shows increases in the last 30 years, not, not decreases. For example, Gallup asked every two or three years since 1977 this question do you yourself happen to be involved in any charity or social service activities such as helping the poor the sick or the elderly when the question was first asked in 1977 26% said they had and it rose gradually reached um, 39% in 1987 and 46% in 1991 and 54% said they were such involved and then there's the idea that um, uh, civic America may be declining because of um, a decline in, in, in social trust and confidence. And yet it's hard to find the data that, that support that and a lot of data that contradict it. If you look at the pop cynicism questions like do you, how much of the time do you trust the government in Washington to do what is right, of course you can plot your lines about declining trust and confidence. 
But if you ask questions about belief in the fundamental integrity of the political system, you don't find any withdrawal. It's the idea that the people running the show now aren't doing a very good job, which is a comforting conclusion. I mean, if it were a conclusion any other, that would be a source of great questioning about the civic understanding of, of, of the public. Uh, is voting down? Well, yes, compared to 1960, but rates of voting now are about the average of the 1930 to 1998 span. Not great, but they're, they're pretty common kind of American experience. And when you look in a lot of other areas involving social trust, uh, you find uh, even more, much more encouraging positions. Americans are asked repeatedly different kinds of questions about whether they consider their society fair. In, in many different ways, and they say yes. And if you work hard, you get a good chance to get ahead, and they say yes. And blacks as well as whites say if you work hard, you get a chance to get ahead. Various measures of, uh, of, of, of fairness, which I believe relates closely to the concept uh, of trust. And, and when you ask questions about your trust and confidence about the people with whom you live, I mean in your neighborhoods, or the, with whom you work, and so forth, you get high expressions uh, of... Uh, uh, of, of trust. There is some evidence that civic engagement did decline from the late 60s on through to about 1980. It didn't fall completely off the tables. A nation of joiners didn't become overnight a nation of loners. But there's enough data that convinced me that we may really have experienced in that span uh, a, a real falling off that had continued would be very troubling. So one last question for you, Tim, is Ladd calls TV, quote, a monstrosity. <laughs> but he does not think that it is uniquely responsible for any kind of civic erosion. So you may disagree. That- I mean, we haven't, co- we haven't conducted, like, randomized controlled trials. <laughs> this is what we need to do is deny TV, smartphone apps, and this to a number of uh, a bunch of people and see if they uh, have greater social capital. But... And to some extent, we do. Um, so <laughs> Tucker Carlson said recently, he said, well, maybe we need to f- have a con- Congress ban kids from having social media accounts. And this is obviously a horrible idea. But then I thought about it. The circles my wife and our friends run in are basically doing this for our kids. We send our kids to Catholic schools and the older ones, all boys school and an all girls school, basically have a ban on smartphones and there is a culture at least in the younger grades that our kids have gone into so far against having social media accounts so if we were in the ordinary public school saying no to our sixth grader you can't have snapchat you can't do your own instagram or whatever we would be fighting against the culture so these institutions provide us with this sort of fortress that it makes it easier for us to do what we know is right for our kids. So it's obviously not a randomized <laughs> trial because there's lots of selection bias in who's sending their kids to these places. But that would be, so I can't prove it. And it could just be that other, again, there's so many confounding factors that a social scientist could point to. But it seems to me undeniable that, especially watching kids in video games, it drags them out of the real world. And I would love to see data backing this up. And I'm guilty of going by sort of anecdote in my gut here. But I, it does seem to me clearly that, uh, that a lot of the technology, particularly TV, video games, social media, and smartphones, drags people out of where they physically are. And the main thing that's sometimes hard for like intellectuals to understand is that physical proximity to other people really matters a lot more 
than they think. And that sounds kind of hokey and cheesy until you think about what makes us conservatives. We, we're, we acknowledge a fatal conceit that central planners can't plan an economy. That's also kind of true on our own life. We need to have put ourselves in the situation where we can have happy accidents from which we can learn. And so from that, it seems to me almost inevitable that this is going to happen. I'm open to being overturned by, you know, there are more and more studies about social media and kids. But as it is now, it looks pretty convincing to me that a lot of technology is dragging us away from real human interaction and thus depleting that well of social capital. Presumably binge watching The Office for 24 hours straight is not going to be great for forging human connections. Thank you, Tim, for joining us. The Bradley Lectures, sponsored by the Lind and Harry Bradley Foundation, were given for over a quarter century at AEI, beginning in September 1989. I and AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman hope you enjoyed this episode. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast, and click the link in the description below to watch the full lecture. Thank you for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time on the Bradley Lectures Podcast. <laughs>